Coming up, it is part two of our Dig Deep conversation with Aaron Brown and Chuck Marone. It ran on June 8th of 2020. We talked a few days before that. And Chuck and Aaron are commenting on the things we are living through right now, including power and racism and police. This is how the first part of the conversation ended with Aaron Brown. Minnesota, I think, is a, is a flashpoint. We're the first, you know, the first to offer troops to fight the Civil War, uh, to put down the South and their treason. But we were not doing it to protect the interests of the slaves, of the people who were held in bondage. We were doing it for power. And that is the problem. People want to preserve the power structure when it benefits them. And that's where we are. I think that's a very interesting thought in the sense that, you know, I've, I'm reading this book called The Great Leveling. And it's about how you can think of it as wealth imbalances, but I think there's also a correlation of power imbalances, obviously, have been leveled throughout history. And both the optimistic and the depressing part of the book coalesce around the fact that these levelings have happened. These great periods of inequality have, have occurred. And then there's always been a leveling that has happened that has essentially like fixed that power imbalance. I have looked at, you know, myself, I, I won't deny I do this from a, a place of privilege. So we don't have to, you know, you don't have to hammer me people listening on that conversation. I have looked at the black experience in America as one of pushing towards one of these levelings. And it's been my kind of thought or my contention that what we ultimately would experience, and I think like Black Lives Matter is part of this, is actually more tension, more disgust, uh, more pushback over incidents that maybe I mean, for sure, a century ago would have just been tolerated. 50 years ago would have been looked at as, well, that's progress. And now we're talking about microaggressions, getting teachers kicked out of classrooms for them. In some ways, if you look at it through a strictly like conservative lens, you're kind of pushing back on each thing. I've tried to step back and look at it from a historic standpoint and recognize that the way revolutions happen is not the peasants uprising. The peasants uprising are easy to put down. You just go and slaughter peasants. I mean, that's what historically despotic systems have done. Where revolutions happen is when people with a little bit of power or with growing amounts of power overthrow people with larger power bases. It's often the the lieutenants and the captains that mutiny, not the enlisted soldiers. And so part of what we've seen, and this is a narrative of progress, but also, you know, difficulty. So I'm not trying to wish away or, or pretend it doesn't exist, the difficulty. But a lot of what we see today is a result of the fact that Black Americans, former slaves, have a lot more power and respect and authority and capital and access to things than they did 50 years ago. And that has given a greater platform for discontent and unrest. In that sense, I kind of have always embraced the Black Lives Matter movement. This is the logical outcome of people getting together and pushing back on things with power. And we should expect that when the systems are oppressive or disrespectful, that people who gain a certain amount of power will push back on it. And I think it's very healthy in that sense. I think the downside of the great leveling, and this is the depressing part of this book, 
is that the book goes to great lengths to point out that the only things that have really truly leveled huge inequality have been things like disease, war, mutiny, and like overthrow, famine, all these things that like no one wants to live through. And so I feel like the challenge for us in this time is is not to, and, and I think conservatives have a tendency to do this, to overreact to something like a statement like America is founded on white supremacy and America is an apartheid country. I, I get where those statements come from and I get how there is more than a sliver of validity to those assertions. Yet, I started this whole thing by saying I look at America as a system of governance focused on equality, focused on justice, focused on equal treatment before the law. And if we can get to a point where we can appeal to those things in a broader sense and demonstrate how they're not being, you know, we're not living the morals that we say we are. We, in Minnesota, we're not living the Minnesota nice. That is the veneer we're putting over top of something that is a lie. Do we want to embrace the lie or do we want to embrace the veneer? Do we want to seek to become our better selves? I would like to think that we could make that transition without pestilence, without famine, without war, without an overthrow of the government, without people dying in the streets. But I don't know. I, I don't know. I think that if we truly want that transition to happen, we have to be willing to kind of think differently about things. And I think from a conservative lens, I would say we need to desperately reform. Uh, I, I don't, what I don't want to do is I don't want to make this conversation political, but, but I, I do think that one of the things that we've kind of coalesced here, at least Aaron and I have around, is the need to empower people locally to solve problems and work together and build communities. That has a racial tension in itself because an all white rural affluent community or what have you will have different resources than an, an inner city, you know, minority dominated community may have. But I think the operative word to me is empowerment. If you go to the core assertions of the Black Lives Matter movement, to me, they sound very conservative. They're very much about, we don't want to be dominated by outside forces. We want to be able to assert our own future. We want to be able to control, in a sense, our own bodies, our own places, our own communities, and, and be able to you know, have that be our base of power. That's a deeply conservative, and I would, I would propose a deeply American point of view. I wish we could find a way to get to that but it would require a lot of people giving up a lot of power. And those things often don't happen without a lot of pain involved. Right. It's almost impossible to avoid the, the pain. I'll just start by saying that Chuck and I have generally fallen back to our, our, our safe place is talking about the way our communities can take care of themselves in the absence of any other leadership, should take care of themselves, should be proactive and take care of the people using every tool available to them. And a lot can be done with just some good people in a small place trying to do some good. I think we've always agreed about that and we disagree about some other things. And there are plenty of disagreements around the country right now about how these protests and associated events have, have played out. I think, though, Chuck did bring up, and, and I would reference, if you want to talk about specifics, why Minnesota, why Minneapolis, 
I think you have to look at the local issue breakdown that, that exemplified this now international issue. Minneapolis Police Department is among the, all the big city police departments in the country, one of the most dominated by people, officers, staff, who do not live in Minneapolis. They, they don't live in the city. 92% of them live outside the city of Minneapolis. Some of them quite a bit out of Minneapolis. They live in the suburbs, the outer ring suburbs, my father, there's a Minneapolis police officer who lives near my father in Chisago County, which is in the 8th Congressional District, who drives in, into the city. And he comes home at night and he has a barbecue with his family by the lake in this idyllic people with horse pastures and riding crops. And, and, and So um, I'm not saying it's a nice place. I'm not, uh, I don't mean to brag on it too much. It's a, it's a lovely place and lovely people in Chisago County, but it's not Minneapolis. And the prevailing attitude is often officers and people who talk about going into Minneapolis and they talk about it like, like they're soldiers off to war every day. They're soldiers off to war to go into this war zone where there's drugs and crime, and gangs and people who need, frankly, need their skulls thumped. And when that's your attitude, even if it's subtle, even if it's just... And maybe it's a lived experience because police officers never get to deal with the finest members of a community. Uh, 90% of the time they're dealing with people who are in the throes of addiction or criminal behavior or both. And, and you know, that affects your perception. So, so police officers get that much credit because it's really hard to get that input in your life and not have that affect your attitude. But when you don't live in the community, because listen, I have had encounters with police officers through my life that were changed by the fact that my kid went to school with their kid. They, they, they're they a person that I remember from school. I'll tell you this, just, just as a brief aside, I used to keep a clip-on tie in my car because I would get pulled over coming home from these far-flung council meetings by rural cops. And if I was wearing a tie, they wouldn't give me a ticket. And if I wasn't, I would inevitably get a ticket. I had like a tie thing. And I'm, seriously, this would happen over and over and over. So yeah, I'm, I'm, there's no doubt that this happens. Yeah. Again, a lot of blame. You want to, people want to throw a lot of blame on the individual officers. I want to I give the individual officers a break though for a minute for now and say that we have a systemic problem when your police force is external to your city and its communities and that was evident you know when um when we saw the death of george floyd and when we saw the reaction to the riots uh, or to the peaceful protests that then caused i mean will be there will be books and books and books on on what happened here and i i can't say with any certainty how how the protests, the riots, the looting, the fires. I right now sitting here, I don't think we know that. I don't think we've gotten the whole story. Um, there's a lot of people, both liberal and conservative, pro cop and pro protester, who think they know the answers. I don't know the answers, and I don't think any of us do yet. But there is enough complication in that how all that went down that. You got to say that a, a police force that actually knew its community better 
probably could have reacted more quickly or could have called in the help they needed more quickly. Um, that, that wouldn't have, cause, because a lot of this was turf, this was different jurisdictions and, 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 um, you had a force that because it was external, uh, the closest people they had to work with are their core, you know, the, this is any institution when it becomes insular. I've seen this in political organizations in small towns when the councils become insular. They don't talk to outside people. They don't get outside perspective. They only talk to each other. That gets uh, that puts people in a bind, and you're going to make mistakes, maybe even really bad mistakes if you if your organization does that. So that's what I see, you know, and that's where good local a good local strategy implemented years ago might have might have prevented this from happening or at least having it happen in Minneapolis. I'd layer on top of that a whole bunch of things. There's a fantastic book called Rise of the Warrior Cop. It's by a guy named Radley Balco. And I would encourage everybody listening to go get this book. It describes in chilling detail all of the things that were done to militarize local police forces. We talk about the military surplus stuff being sold and, you know, local cities having tanks and armored personnel carriers. And like, we look at that as obscene and over the top, but, but the real pernicious stuff is not only giving them military grade weapons, but portions of military training and military bearing. So that as, as Aaron was saying, you know, you look at this in a military sense as like an occupying force subduing uh, people from a military standpoint. I was in the army and I was a truck driver. So I was not like a, an infantryman. I was not trained special forces, none of that stuff. I got rudimentary rifle training, but even in rudimentary rifle training, you are taught, you never point your rifle at anything you don't intend to kill. And you can see people, you know, where they show military confrontations, where people are pointing weapons. You Once you've pointed a weapon, you've decided that I'm okay with this person dying. I'm okay with ending this person's life. And if they don't do exactly what I'm telling them to do in this moment, their life will be over. That's what a military use of force is all about. When we bring that to civilian life, I saw back in Ferguson, these pictures of Cops pointing weapons at people with their hands up, kneeling on the ground, laying on the ground. There was a photo the other day from one of these recent ones with a, a police officer pointing a weapon at a man with a baby on top of his head. We have given local police forces militarization in terms of their tactics and in terms of their weapons, but we have not given them militarization in terms of the morals and the, the level of engagement that they're supposed to have. We don't walk around in the military just pointing weapons at people that we, you know, are disobeying us or don't like us. If you pick your weapon and point it at someone, you've crossed a mental threshold in terms of the way you view that person's life. And the fact that this is a routine occurrence, something that just goes on and on as a matter of course in local policing, it, it is deeply disturbing and it should be deeply disturbing to conservatives as much as it is to liberals. This is not the way our founding fathers envisioned police forces in this country working. It's not how I think anybody, you, you go back to the debates over whether we should have an FBI or not and whether they should carry weapons or not and what their role is. We have gotten to the point where we now nationalized, you know, called out the military nationwide for the first time since like 1807 or something like that. If that doesn't create alarm bells, 
I don't know what will. I'm going to say something here, and I, I don't, I realize that I maybe have been a little bit dire in this conversation. I think maybe this time calls for it. But Erin and I once had a fascinating conversation on the air. It was fascinating for me uh, about the Russian Revolution and just the implications of it. Erin said something that I've thought about a lot. It really stuck with me. He said the Russian Revolution would have been like one day the president was running the country or one day the czar was running the country. And the next day, the guys from 7-Eleven or the Holiday Station store were there running the country. That was the radical level of change. I think as someone watching this as a bystander and understanding how fragile our local communities are, understanding how fragile our economy is, how fragile our system of government is, how this inequality has just kind of ground us down, the idea that we could wake up tomorrow with a different form of government seems like insane to us, like it seems beyond our capacity to believe or understand. But literally, that has happened over and over and over again throughout human history. And when I watched the U.S. Army being mobilized around the entire country, that's what comes to my mind is like we've reached a place where the outcomes for here may be a tamping down or a a ramping down of things, maybe, but the idea that something radical or crazy or epoch shifting would happen is certainly on the table at this moment. And that that's difficult to ponder in my mind. There was a story I just saw today, um, a retired CIA analyst saying that the events of the past week, if this was a foreign country and, and it was his job to monitor foreign countries and their domestic situations, we would have been flagged as a political overthrow. Yeah, we would have been flagged as a monitor this very closely. We might have new leadership here in the near future because of the, it wasn't just the people in the streets, it's the reaction of the people at the top. And as, as people lose a mandate to govern, they lose their effectiveness. Crazy things happen, right? Yeah, exactly. They, they, they can't control what's happening anymore, both because of the people, the opposition, the protesters who might not even be armed, but but their own their own means of you know doing things. I mean, are we confident that the military will, if if sent into cities to put down a riot, can we be confident anymore that the military will do exactly as ordered, uh, especially if it appears very political? That was my question. We called out the entire National Guard here in Minnesota. I was in the National Guard. My first question was, do these people have bullets? I remember when I was in my advanced training in Missouri, we were sent overnight to guard the post exchange, you know, where you can go and buy cigarettes and pop or whatever. And it was like an exercise. They were teaching you how to do guard duty. Well, they gave you a rubber gun. I mean, from a distance, it would have looked like an M16, but up close, it was like a floppy rubber gun. I'm like, are we sending these people out with bullets? Are we sending them out with rubber guns? And the answer was, we're sending them out with bullets. Like they're staying in the industry with bullets. So the next question is, is the Minnesota National Guard going to start shooting Minnesotans? Like is, because clearly if you're there to guard the Capitol and the mob is rushing the Capitol, are they authorized to shoot and kill people? Well, that is something that is, let, let me put it this way in a, in a more frivolous setting. Having raised daughters, I have learned very clearly that you don't draw lines. You don't draw lines that you, you know, are going to defend till the end, unless it's like the most serious line. 
But as soon as you draw lines, they like go across it. And then you're left with, okay, what do I do? Do I smack down this errant kid and put them in their place? Or do I bend on my line? And the reality is, is that as a good parent, you just don't draw lines like that because you know their confrontation points. Well, the governor doesn't have that option, right? Like he's in the Capitol. He's got to have military around the Capitol. Do they shoot people? And so you can see how, to me, this is the, the way that I view things. If you go back to 2008, when George Bush and Hank Paulson and Nancy Pelosi stood there and said, we need a trillion dollars to give to the bank so there won't be food on the shelves in 48 hours. My reaction to that was, is that even possible? Like, you're telling me like that's in play right now? Like we could have mass riots and starvation because the banking system broke? That's a much more fragile system than anybody thought. Well, we're actually at a point right now where like if a couple things go wrong, a lot of bad, bad stuff happens very, very quickly. And so, you know, we've put like chess pieces on the table that are just increasing the level of volatility and instability and craziness without really any, I think, awareness and certainly no kind of like thought or coordination or long-term plan or like strategy about how this plays out. It seems very, very defensive. And in, in looking at, you know, that, that CIA analyst, I read that same piece, you, you, you look historically at that and that is like the hallmark of regime failure, of places completely falling apart. And this is the United States. We're the world's reserve currency. We're the largest economy in the world. We're the most affluent country in the history of civilization. The idea that we would go from three years ago having Russians disrupt our election with tweets and Facebook posts to now like imploding and feeding in on ourselves, you know, this is like bin Laden's dream of what would happen to us when he took down two buildings. We have become the thing we said we would not become. And I think the painful thing for me is to sit on the sidelines and watch it and recognize that not only am I powerless to stop it, but really it's seemingly anyone is powerless to stop it. You earlier, Chuck, were talking about the militarization of our small town police forces. And, and there's lots of examples of this. Um, uh, every Hibbing Police Department officer, for instance, was issued a, an assault rifle, essentially, and that they would have in the event of what I can only presume would be a military uh, exercise of some kind involving, well, frankly, a riot. And my only thought on that was the old saying, you know, when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. Because, you, you know, we got all kinds of social unrest up there in Hibbing. Uh-huh. Yeah. Well, it's been really interesting because we had curfews in Hibbing and Virginia a few nights ago. And you try to get to like, what well, the curfews, they said there's credible threats against these towns. And I'm like, okay, let's look into it. Where are the credible threats? Like, what are these? And, and, and now a few days later, we can look back and say, it looked like just internet rumors. It looked like just a bunch of stuff that like people who threatened, uh, oh, we're going to go to the small towns and get them, that kind of thing, which now we're finding out we're actually not from the leftist organizations, but were false flags put out by the, by other different kinds of organizations, all to create unrest. But when you're a hammer, everything looks like a nail. And I'm going to use an example. This is, I hope this is not too cute for this, for the topic, but my grandfather was a Kewatin city police officer back in the 1950s and very early 1960s. He was the town cop in the little town, little sleepy iron range town. And uh, he carried 
certain equipment with him. He had a gun and he had, you know, the badge and the hat. And he had uh, a baton of sorts. It's It was a lead ball wrapped in leather and then bound tightly in a leather handle. Anyway, you'd whap people with this if you needed to. And he told me he, he did a couple times have to whap a guy uh, with it. And as a young boy, and I was his first grandson. All he wanted was a son. He got six daughters and then a granddaughter. And then, then I came along. And so he always would take me and, you know, try to impart every part of his life on me. And I, I, we grew very close. But as a far too young a child, he decided he was going to give me this baton as something that I would have as a small boy with two young sisters. I was going to have this riot control baton in my possession. And my mother was furious and she said, he's, he can't have that. You know, he's going to hit his sisters with that. And I swore, oh, no, I am never, ever going to hit my sisters with this, but I'm never going to do it. Never. I don't know how long it was. Maybe a week later, I hit one of my sisters with it and it was gone. I got to take it away forever. I think it got thrown out because it was gone. Now I was a child and you can say that I was just a child doing things, but I, I think when you have the tools of riot suppression in your possession, everything that that becomes escalated looks like it could become a riot. But, you know, there are always two directions when things escalate. They don't have to escalate to the next level. They could, in fact, be arrested here and brought back down. And And I think certain parts of the country were much more successful in keeping protests from becoming riots in part because of de-escalation rather than escalation. Now, there, like I said, there's stuff we don't know about how those early nights of looting and burning in Minneapolis happened. I would love to know more about some of that. But it appeared like there were peaceful protests happening, uh, surrounded by Minneapolis police, and then at some point, the fear or the whatever skipped the tracks and... Police overreacted on one side of town and then other people, maybe some of the same people, maybe different people, that started tearing the city down with very little police protection in places where that was happening. Far too late to do any good to protect the, the, the homes and businesses that were affected. This is the thing. When, I've never felt I'm really angry about a problem in this country. I'm going to take a brick and I'm going to throw it through the window of an institution because I'm so mad. I, I don't think that way. But when I see police marching on the street or, or riot patrols or militaristic units storming through the streets where I might have bought a cup of coffee two days earlier, I want to pick up a brick and throw it through a window. This is me talking as a person. And this is how people who live in those communities feel. How would you feel if it was your community? How would I feel if there were military units deployed at my place of work or at the gas station where I got my gas and they were looking over everybody coming in and out, I'd resent them. I might throw a brick. Who knows what I'd do? Because I'm mad. This is part of the thing that we're missing. And there's a way to de-escalate and a way to address the concerns in a way that that could be much more productive. And, and I hope we get there. But boy, these last few days and weeks have been tough. The more we treat this as a military occupation the more we will have a military occupation, the more we'll have an insurgency. If I'm going to get the last word, I, I'm, I'm going to say this in a way that I don't want this to be political. So please don't read too much into this. But the, you know, the more we focus on 
the presidency and the top down and who can we defeat to get our person in place as if that will just make all of these systematic bottom up things right. I think the more we are focusing our efforts in the wrong place, the more we focus on each other, on our neighborhoods, and I'm the conservative, I'm going to say this, the more we can love other people. You know, I do think that there's a little bit of holding hands and, and hippie-ish kind of discounting of that that we often do. Um, but the reality is, is we need to, you know, instead of having the the hammer be the militarization of our country, have the hammer be, let's default to looking at each problem, each nail as like a human and a human suffering and a human complexity that really needs a human touch to it, as opposed to something that, you know, we can just put through the, the, the grinder, which has been our kind of top-down efficient way to solve problems for, for decades and decades and decades. As always with Dig Deep, with Aaron Brown and Chuck Marone, we want your feedback. You can email comments at kexe.org and sign up for that Dig Deep podcast. It's at our website, kexe.org. I'm Heidi Holton, and I thank you for listening to this Dig Deep. We are member-supported, we're small, we're independent, a national public radio affiliate, bringing you the voices of the people who live in northern Minnesota, talking about big issues like what we've been hearing from Chuck and Aaron in this hour. We need your support. That's how a station like this has existed for over 44 years. We're in a tough time right now, and we continue to need your support to make our budget. You can go to kexe.org to become a member or give a donation now. We thank you for listening to Dig Deep. For more information on Aaron Brown, you can go to minnesotabrown.com or Chuck Marone, go to strongtowns.org.